I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. Hello, hello, wonderful humans. For today's interview, I had the privilege and absolute pleasure of speaking with Alex or Al Troutman, and we just had such a good conversation. Al Troutman is a wonderful human being who's worked with the federal government for many years. So if you're interested in getting your hands on a federal position, this interview is for you. We also dive into microaggressions and underrepresentation in biology and the sciences, some scholarships and grant opportunities that might be available to you, and just kind of talk about how seasonal workers tend to get the short end of the stick when it comes to conservation benefits. So stay tuned for this episode. It is great. We also <laughs> we also discuss the, um, the fact that Al is pretty much a turtle Batman. And I think that's freaking awesome. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking with Al. And I also wanted to let you know that you can contact me, Laura Marsh, at novaconservationtravel at gmail.com. If you have any questions, if you know of anyone who you think would be a good fit for an interview, or you just want to reach out and say hi, I'd love to hear from you. Also, we are, <laughs> we are doing this free of charge to share the stories and share this community that we have. So thank you for being part of it. Um, and you can help and encourage the growth of the Nova Conservation community by sharing this episode or anything else you find on our social media at Nova underscore conservation on Instagram or at Nova underscore conserve without the E on Twitter, although I'm not really on Twitter that much. We're also on Facebook. Find us there. And... If you have the means, consider donating to Patreon, patreon.com slash novaconservation, one word. We value and love your support. Thank you so much for allowing us to share these stories, and it just kind of covers the cost of time to be able to do this. So, oh yeah, the final thing is we're looking for a co-host if you're interested in possibly co-hosting with me. I'd love to chat with you more. Reach out, and I hope to hear from you soon. Otherwise, enjoy the conversation with Al Troutman. Hey everyone, welcome back to Nova Conversations. Today I have Alex Troutman with me and I'm really excited to hear from him, hear his story, his background, history, um, how you got to be where you are now and how you got to be just like where you can have a turtle um, wallpaper, wallpaper screen behind you. Like that's, I love that. So what's your story with turtles and your history there? Yeah, so this picture right here is actually Kent's Ripley sea turtle hatchlings. Um, this is from, my, I believe, my first season as a turtle biologist with the National Park Service down on Corpus in Corpus Christi on Padre Island National Seashore. So I did that for two years, working with not only Kent's Ripley sea turtles, but also um, some green and hawksbills and loggerheads. My main focus there was um, working with the nesting Kent's Ridley sea turtles, but we also worked with any sea turtles that happened to be stranded on the beach, either by 
um, having human interventions. So like um, they got hit by a boat or they got caught by um, a fisherman. So if they were stranded that way, we would go out and help them. Or if they were maybe chased ashore by a predator, we would go out um, and work them up and then send them to a rehab until they were healthy and release them. So this is where my pictures come from. It's working with the nestling camps really sea turtles. Um, so this is some of their hatchlings that we release. That's so great. And so for the podcast form, you, if you can't see it, we'll link a picture at the bottom. But did you take that picture? I did. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I took it on one of our um, releases. So after they hatch, we'll release them as close as possible to where um, their nest was laid at. Um, so this is us release them, got to take a quick picture before they went out to see. That's, I mean, that's like some um, Nat Geo stuff right there. Like it's a beautiful up close shot of these baby sea turtles and you can see all the little scales on their back. What are they called? Scoots? Scoots. Yeah. Yes, scoots. I remember a little bit from her <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to hear how you got into sea turtles and how you got into biology and your whole background. But First, I, I'm trying to remember to start my conversations with like your favorite field story. So do you have something funny, um, embarrassing that you just think was super awesome, super cool that you want to share with us? What's your favorite story from the field? Yeah, um, I'll continue with a turtle thing. My very first time, I'll talk about the very, my very first time actually seeing a nesting sea turtle. Um, so yeah, it was my probably like sixth day on the job, if that. I wouldn't even say maybe my fourth or fifth um, because I had came in and later in the season. So I had to do a training and right after the training, the next day is when I saw my first sea turtle. So I was riding along with my volunteer and uh, we had been chatting all, chatting all morning and just talking about what to expect when we um, come across a turtle. And like, I just happened to look in the distance and like, I seen a big object like halfway out of the water and okay. I was like wow that's a big rock and wow. as we was getting closer I was like oh man that rock is moving and then finally I just like started hitting my um, volunteer like I'm trying to like hey 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 that's a turtle that's a turtle and it was a emerging sea turtle and then like I was super excited and he just looked at me and he was like I know uh, <laughs> so that was like my first experience like seeing it coming out of the water um, my first ever wild sea turtle that I ever saw. Um, and then once it came out of water, we stayed back a little bit so it can do its thing. So we, I got to watch it dig, um, dig an actual nest. And once it stopped digging, um, it went into a trance where it was laying its eggs. So I was able to work it up. So when we're working it up, we're taking measurements, um, the carapace length, carapace width, we're using both like a a soft tape measure and then also a metal caliper um, rod to get measurements of that and then we're checking for any tags so they'll usually have three different tags on them or in them so they'll have two metal tags and those are usually one on the front flipper and another one on the back flipper and then they'll have a pit tag with an electronic tag that you can scan um, so we're checking for tags we're measuring the character's length. Um, we're looking for any like abnormalities on the shell. And then um, for some of the turtles, we also take a um, skin tag, a flipper tag uh, to get a biological sample from that. 
Um, so we're doing all that while she's laying her eggs. And then once she gets done laying her eggs on, we're backing off and watching her cover the nest and then go back to the sea. So I got to see that whole experience, got her, watch her come out of the actual ocean, dig her nest, lay her eggs, and go back to the sea. Um, but yeah, that first time it was, it was just funny because I thought it was a rock. Um, and then it turns out to be a sea turtle. I love that story. I especially love it because it's so early in your, it was so early in your job. You said like five days into your work. Yes. That's awesome that you got that just incredible experience so early on. And then your excitement, like, I think one of the most fun things about being a biologist is getting to experience other people's excitement when they see something that's really cool that they've only, they've only seen on, you know, TV or newsreels or something and they see it in front of their eyes for the first time and that that is palpable that is so exciting but then yeah as you work with more and more species you kind of get like used to it a little bit so it's so fun to have someone who's new to the process come out and like remind you of how fresh this all is and how exciting it really is so that's a beautiful story I love that story and I also didn't realize until I talked to you, you were in Chattanooga um, a few months ago, probably. Um, and I didn't realize that female turtles went into a trance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they go in that trance when they're laying their eggs. Um, so when they're in that trance, they're pretty much oblivious to anything that's going around them because they're so focused to drop them eggs um so yeah that's one way one of the reason we are able to work them up is because they're so focused on on laying their eggs that they're in that trance and if we were to go up before they're in that trance we would spook them and they would do what's a what's called a false crawl which is not lay their eggs and go back to the sea and many times if they do do a false crawl not i'm not gonna say many times sometimes when they do do a false crawl they can actually end up dropping their eggs in, in the sea and not actually laying them. Mm -hmm. When they're in the trance, I don't know if you know this or not, like, is it, it's like, you know how when um, opossums are playing dead, you can't rouse them or like what an animal is in true hibernation. You could like, are they, are they just biologically like nothing will rouse them and they have no memory of that? Do you probably don't know, but or do you think that they could wake up and come come to, if you will? Yeah, um, so far, I don't think that, um, like, maybe if it's something, like, truly traumatic, it might wake them up. But for my, for my knowledge and experience, um, they don't wake up from the trance. Mm -hmm. Like, because we are working them up, like, we're actually touching them. And as you know, like, mm -hmm the carapace actually has, has like nerves in it. So they can actually feel us like touching, touching them like, so like that they don't wake up from that trend. So it has to be something like traumatic maybe for them to wake up, but at least what we're doing, we're, we're touching them, we're pinning a tape measure on them, we're pinning a caliper on them, we're yeah. um, using uh, a punch to get a skin tag um, mm -hmm. for their flipper and they, they don't wake up. Um, so from my knowledge, like it, had, it probably would have to be something traumatic for them to actually come out of that trance because that folks is laying, laying those eggs. Um, there have been times like when you um, get up there later on during 
on the trans where they come come out. So like maybe you don't actually see the turtle emerge. You just happen to um, stumble upon her and notice that she's she's already laying. So you may come up to her while she's laying those last couple eggs, and that's when um, she's coming out as you're laying as she's coming out of that trance as you're working her up. So you're just like trying to hurry up and like measure everything before she um, gets to the sea. Yep. It, it's kind of convenient from a biologist standpoint that they do go into this trance. So you're not worrying about a, how, how much are they like 300 pounds probably? Well, these guys are the smallest ones. So they're 80 to hundred pounds. Okay. The ones I'm working with that yeah. comes readily, but there are some that get up to 300 or even with the leather back up. Over a ton. Oh, snap. Yeah. yeah, leatherbacks are big. They're about the size of a small car. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's nice that they go into this trance state so you can take all these measurements and get the scientific information. Just yes, <laughs> like it, it is really nice because <laughs> like trying to work them up, like especially ones that we happen to come across after they lay their eggs and they're already back to sea. So like trying to work, work them up, um, they're 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 strong and motivated to get back to the sea. So you're trying to like um, be as gentle as possible and still like hurry up and get the measurements while they're like moving. So you're like, you just got, you already got the tape measure out and you're just trying to hurry up and measure it. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, well, the trance is, is very nice. <laughs> like a gift. Oh, thank you yes. for being quiet and calm while we do this work. So speaking of work, tell me about your history, background. Where did you go to school? How did you get into this? what's uh what's your story and should i call you al you go by al right yes al is fine yes prefer al or alex uh al al is probably best um okay. when yeah. i don't know know people they call me alex and, yeah okay yeah like yeah, okay i remember having that conversation because my husband is a daniel but we call him danny so when someone addresses him as daniel i'm like you clearly don't know right, <laughs> right. he's danny okay so al um yeah so what's your history background story all that yeah so i'm from uh well it's not even a small town anymore <laughs> i'm from a smaller city outside of atlanta called austell um i was born in atlanta and grew up in austell um like always had an interest in nature and wildlife um it started out with I'm watching like Jeff Corn and Steve Warren on TV and like I knew I wanted to do what they were doing, but I never really had any representation of anyone who looked like me who was black working with animals. Um, there were people who were black that was working. Uh, they were farmers or they were, um, were vets. Um, so for the longest time, I thought that's what I, I would do. Um, but that's later on in life. Um, but growing up, like um, I was, like I said, I was always in there in nature and wildlife, so um, most of my chores would take forever to do, like cutting the grass, um, because I would be focused on the snakes and frogs that are running away from the lawnmower, did the actual <laughs> task of cutting the grass, and then I spent many um, times fishing uh, with my brothers and uncle and dad, and then um, like I would just be amazed by the red-tailed hogs, like, soaring over, and then, like, seeing like that red tail actually like amplified and by the sun just right yeah. um that was like that's actually my spark bird is a red tail hawk yeah. um and then like i was also uh, watched the great blue herons catching <laughs> more fish than i was 
Um, <laughs> so that kind of got my interest in it. Um, and then like my main focus was seeing like how many animals I could see, like even like playing sports, like I would get in trouble because I was looking down at an ant pile or watching a butterfly fly away while I was playing baseball. So the ball would um, go over my head or go somewhere else. So I had to run and chase it. Um, but so for a long time, like I just knew I wanted to do something with animals and wildlife. And I never really knew exactly what uh, I thought I was going to be a vet because like the, those are the only people who look like me that started working with animals. So I, I went and decided I was going to be a vet and went to college to be a vet and um the first year I actually changed my major um because I found out vets um have a high uh, depression and suicide rate because a lot of times they're the last ones in the rooms with animals when they're being put down because on the one wants to be in the room with their animals getting put down so I actually switched my major and thought um, I wanted to teach um so I uh, changed my major to middle grades education and minor in biology and around the same time, I took my first field courses, um, ornithology and mammalogy. Ornithology is the study of birds and mammalogy is the study of mammals. And both of those were field courses where we're actually outside observing um, the respective organisms. So for ornithology birds and for mammalogy, small mammals. And we got the um, trout, uh, some mammals, and we was using Sherman traps. So like been able to actually get my hands on um, these animals and just be outside. I was like, yeah, like I'm gonna make it work where I'm outside, like working with animals all the time. So I actually switched my major back to biology and then graduated degree in biology. And I went on to get a um, internship with a Student Conservation Association, um, partnered with AmeriCorps in Allegheny County as a park ranger, um, Allegheny County is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hmm. So I was a park ranger up there for about seven months working in um, nine other county parks. Um, mostly I focus on the south, the southern parks. And um, I was doing that and we, it was kind of a funny, like, it was a funny situation because we came into that um, system and a lot of the people, park goers, and even the police officer um, were actually upset that we were coming into the parks because they thought we were stealing their jobs. They thought we were gonna be writing tickets and enforcing um, rules. And we had to explain to them like, no, like we're not gonna be enforcing any rules or laws. Like we're here basically trying to get you to uh, utilize the green space that's here. We're ambassadors to the park. Um, but we will tell you, put your dog, your dog on a leash and stop feeding wildlife. Um, so um, once we got um, through them that like we are just in Bastion Park, like people actually start coming to our program, more people start actually coming to our programs. And we had a, a, a good um, <clears throat> a good team of dynamics with the police officers that was in the park. Um, so once we got past that, it was, it was smooth selling, but for the first couple on weeks it was uh, it was a tricky situation trying to like just pretty much explain like this is our job and this is like our job that we're not here to enforce any rules like we're basically just ambassadors of the park so I did that for seven months and I got my first federal job actually before I got my first federal job I worked at Zoo Atlanta and the Georgia Aquarium as a um, educator environment educator so I would 
how many times work at the zoo in the morning and then go to the aquarium mid-afternoon or um, during the summer months, I worked at the aquarium um, during the morning until about one and then went to the zoo um, to do different programs at, at night. Um, so I did that for a couple months. Then I finally got my first um, big boy job um, working with the Fish and Wildlife Service up in Wisconsin. Um, and uh, it was, I, I never been to Wisconsin before. I, I didn't know what to think about it. I, I didn't even, um, then like the town that I was in was so small, like people in Wisconsin didn't even know where the town was. That's how small the town was. It was like, it said it had 5,000 people in it, but it probably was like, honestly, less than 500. Wow. Yeah, it, was, it was crazy. Um, what did and, you do up in Wisconsin? Um, in Wisconsin, I was a biological um, science um, age slash technician, and our main goal um, was um, we did a lot of habitat restoration for um, a small butterfly um, called the Connor Blue Butterfly. They're endangered, so they used to be throughout like um, all of Wisconsin, through Indiana, up through the, a couple states, um, even up as far as New York. But now they're all um, in different hot spots across those states. Um, so they've been extirpated, which is locally extinct. Uh, and many of the spots they, they were because of um, agriculture uh, and farming. So mm -hmm. all those, all their habitat was converted to ag fields. Mm -hmm. um, but there are small populations or hot spots in different states. So my job was to restore land that was um, former ag field into um, wetlands and oak savannas and make it suitable habitat for these corner blue butterflies. So we spent, I don't know, I was there for almost a year and we probably spent <laughs> like nine months or so I'm like preparing the land for them. And then um, a couple months or really like a couple weeks out of the year, we went up to their hotspot um, up in middle Wisconsin and collected 416 butterfly eggs and around 20 um, females and brought them back to the greenhouse and reared them up and released them onto some of our WPAs, which are waterfall production areas and then some private lands in hopes that they would um, grow and start uh, a population there. Mm -hmm. And we, we spent a lot of time like um, doing habitat restoration, which is a lot of times like knocking down like undesirable trees and vegetation on um, invasive species. Um, we did a lot of fencing because um, we helped, we also utilized cattle to help uh, with the habitat restoration, them knocking out some of the on veget vegetation because a lot of the funding for fire was going out west so we had to utilize like cattle to help it um so they kind of help similar in the same way with fire like cause that disturbance um in the ground because what the butterflies uses um wild lupin which is like in the pea family so they have a similar like host plant like with the monarchs needs like some disturbance to help grow. Um, so we um, utilized some cattle to do that. Um, and also cattle also just helped raise money um, for some of the projects that we're, we're doing. So 
uh, while helping while utilizing the cattle, we also um, got money for the butterflies and um, a lot of the work we also did was with habitat restoration, not only helped the butterflies, but also ducks and, and chain and because it helped the ducks, it helped it helped the people who hunted the, who hunted the ducks. Um, so they're they're happy for it. So on the money that they use um, to buy um, like hunting equipment and duck sounds came back to us. So it was uh, beneficial for us to make sure that suitable the habitat is suitable for the, the ducks, which in turn made it suitable for the butterflies. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we spent a lot of time like um, thinning thinning forests um, to create the oak, oak savanna better, um, mowing and growing on uh, prairie grasses and flowers um on uh, sw swapping out seeds with different agencies like the west coast indian dnr we had a seed program with them where we would trade some of our seeds that we grew from um, our flowers and grasses with them with what they grew in their um their lands cool so, yeah, so, was, saying, so for the 12 months you were there and did this work nine months of it pretty much was you didn't get any hands-on experience with the actual butterfly like it said it was right. positioned with this endangered species but most of it was really just mowing and outdoor labor yeah it was it was mowing and then it was also um like banding um ducks and Canada geese working with the west coast of dnr um okay. but that was like a couple months but um it was like maybe one one or two months out of the year was um, banning ducks and um, Canada geese with Western DNR in another month or really a couple weeks out of, out of each month we're collecting the eggs and butterflies and then we spend a lot of time in the greenhouse um, we're actually growing the wild lupin some wild lupin in the greenhouse oh wow uh, so yeah but most of it was the habitat uh, restoration manipulation um, but we also um, did do like school days where we would um how students come out and help us um plant wild lupin or plant throw out the seeds okay. um, and then some other projects where it's like um doing wetland delineations and surveying our wetlands because we, we had a lot of wetlands there was 43 wpas which are waterfall production areas um and most of them had a type of wetland on them so we surveying those and then a lot of a lot of spraying for invasive species. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. that's a lot of it was habitat manipulation. And I think just... it's really interesting that you were talking about the cattle and how how cattle and hunting brings more funds to help protect these endangered species. Can you talk a little bit about that and like how that trade off worked? Because I know so many people uh, think hunting is just all bad, always bad. What is your take on that? Yeah, so with, with the cattle, like we lease our, we lease the land to the farmers. Um, so they, instead of like having to like supply their cattle with like grasses and hays, um, hay throughout um, the winter, or if it's like a rough summer, they can be on our land and um, we'll yeah. eat, eat the grasses that they're there. They don't have to supplement that their cattle feed with um, hay from buying it from anywhere else um, and so the cattle are helping to knock down knock down the grass like they'll, they'll eat a lot of the grasses not just like the grasses we want them to eat but also some of the other grasses that 
um, <laughs> that we want. Um, but it, it's a good trail because they're like knocking down, they're knocking down the grasses, and um, they're also like um, trampling and creating disturbance for plants that need a disturbance. And um, some some of their poop actually helps too. Um, so with us leasing the land to the farmers. Uh, we get money from the farmers for them to have the cattle on there. So sometimes it's cattle, other times it's like sheep and goat um, also that help out. Um, and then we are basically just like, we put up we put up a fence, um, like different fences where the cattle can go or not. Some of them have like um, full use of the land. Others, we put up a fence where they only have certain a certain area of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then with the hunters, like, the most of the hunters up there were they're hunting deer and then duck and pheasants. Um, so them like buying buying their supplies like most a lot of the hunting like ammunition and stuff is taxed. Um, so that comes back depending on it could come out it's going to state level where you get funds to your state DNR. Um, but also it comes back federal, especially if you're buying duck stamps. Um, and those help with conservation. So it doesn't like come back to us like directly like Wisconsin people are buying duck stamps for the federal. So it comes out immediately goes back to the Wisconsin um, region for using fish and wildlife service. That goes like it goes back federally for all over and then it's distributed out. Um, so it helps in the federal funds that way. It's not just like oh, so you bought the duck stamp, you're from Wisconsin, you bought a duck stamp. So this money is gonna stay for the federal agencies in, in Wisconsin that is like thrown into a pile and then mm -hmm. uh, redistributed federally. And helping ducks in, in a sense helps all wetlands because right. they're ducks, you're protecting the habitat. It's like this umbrella species of protection. So exactly. Tons of wetland species too. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, um, a lot of like, a lot of the habitat restoration that we were doing helped with the ducks, um, but also helped with the butterflies mm -hmm. um, since they were also using those areas. So cool, so cool. So what happened after Wisconsin? What What's your, you got to work for a few weeks with the actual butterflies. Right, yes. <laughs> Probably lost a lot of sweat <laughs> working yes that it was a lot of sweat even during the winter time it was it was a lot of sweat because we were like bundled up um we we're bundled up so we we're prepared for the cold but while we were working like we were like repairing fences and building fences like in the winter time as well um before the ground got too hard we were still like driving posts and stretching electric electric wire and barbed bar wire fence and like there was a couple times like I would like I, I was sweating and then my sweat would freeze or breathing out like I could see like I can see my breath going out and then it would just hit my beard and my beard would immediately like like freeze from the uh, water and coming out of my mouth. Um, but yeah, so we we did that and then and during the winter times we also it was we also spent a lot of time like checking um, wood duck nesting structures. Uh, so many of our next instructions were actually in the water. So we had to, once the the ice, the water froze over and was ice, was walking out there checking the next instructions. Um, so we did that like in the heat of, in the like dead center of the winter to prevent falling in. And it was, it was nerve wracking. Like my first time walking on the ice, I was like, 
I was like, what, what is this? <laughs> you see all those videos of people who are like, oh, I can walk across it and then they fall in. And right, exactly. And then like, this is a little segue away, but my first time I went ice fishing with my roommate uh-huh. and the first time he took me, like we was driving on the ice and he just started rolling his window down. So I'm looking at him like, I'm like, it's like negative 30 degrees. It wasn't that cold at that point. It was probably like five below, but uh, he started rolling his window down. I'm looking at him like, like, it's cold out here. Why are you rolling the window down? And he's like, just in case we fall in. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm like rolling my window down. Like, but it was it was nerve wracking because we're we're sitting on on the ice and we had like a little pop up tent. And then a lot of other people around us had like like these like thousand dollar like shelters they bought and made and was sitting on it. We was just in there and we was like huddled around the propane tank and you can hear as people were driving on. The ice you can hear like shifting and stuff so that was a little nerve-wracking but I, I survived it but yeah um I worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service for pretty almost a year it was like 363 days <laughs> almost a year but um it was a it was a term position so um it was officially for a year but it could be extended up to four years um, but at that time, a uh, new administration actually came into a new presidential administration came into the office and cut funding for the um, Department of Interior. So a lot of the employees um, were let go. Um, so I was one of those employees. Um, so after that, I got a job with the National Park Service uh, working with sea turtles. Um, and like I applied thinking I was I wasn't going to get it because like I never worked with sea turtles like. I interpreted them about them at the aquarium behind the um, their enclosure, but I never worked with um, sea turtles at all. But I think my field experience from being a park ranger and working with the Fish and Wildlife Service um, helped because um, mm-hmm. they were transferable skills that I would use with the National Park Service. So um, I got that job with the National Park Service. Uh, I was in the uh, division of sea, Sur- sea turtle science and recovery. Um, so once I, I got that job, um, that was when I had my first ever experience with a wild sea turtle, yeah, seeing a rock turn into a sea turtle. <laughs> a rock suddenly so, transformed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, so that was my first experience. And like, it, it was amazing. And then I um, went back for another year and then um, like that for that the second year most of my um job was just responding to um stranded turtles okay. um, so I, I was responding uh, to stranded turtles and then also just like been a um getting stuff supplies down island so um Padre Island is about 60 miles long um and it's like 16 or 60? 60 miles 60, okay. 60 miles so it's one of the um, like least developed um, like islands um, in the country so like the national seashore there's really only like four or five billion buildings there um, and most of them are all like administrative buildings and like and plus the center but everything else um, is untouched mm. um, it's just like straight sand um, and there's certain areas where you can't even drive a vehicle on the on the beach that's um, it's blocked off so it's 60 miles and the first 15 miles what state is it in it's in texas yeah okay i've been there i didn't just know putting this all together but i've been there because i did the cuckoo job in texas and then 
we wrapped up and we went to go visit San Padre National Seashore. Yes. Nice, nice. Yes, so, yeah, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's in Texas. Yeah. So like the first 15 miles are like, we call that pretty much the front country because you still have cell phone service and you don't yep. really need a four-wheel drive vehicle. But after 15 miles, that's starting to get to the back country because um, you lose cell phone service. The, yeah. um, I was going to say the grass. The sand the sand is less compact. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also like um, just the contour of the other beach um, changes. So like there's times where there's pinch points from the waves if it's high, high tide. And then you need a, a four-wheel drive vehicle um, is best. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the backcountry. Um, so then there's a cabin at mile like 3940 where we as a turtle oncologist will sleep in. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything that's like mile 15 above, we, we call the front country. Um, and we usually like at the front country, we have volunteers that would um, drive us um, and then when we're camping we drive ourselves patrolling okay. um, so one of my jobs was to run supplies and fuel from like the front country down to mile 40 fill them up for the week and then drive back out and still at the same time watching for turtles uh, if I were to come across one work it up or call it in uh, to one of the patrollers behind me um, the other times just responding to sea turtle trainings um, visitors if they had cell phone service would call the hotline and say there's a turtle um and say it's either nesting or stranded and then i would respond if it was stranded um and work it up and then take it to a rehab center you're like a turtle batman yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much That's awesome. so, yeah so i got to do that for two years and then i um, went on to work with bats in Malaysia. Oh, I um, didn't know this. Tell me yeah. more. Yeah, so I went on to work with bats in Malaysia for about um, two months. Uh, it was like um, right at like six and a half, seven weeks. Uh, I was in Sabah, Malaysia, which is on the island of Borneo, which is like three different countries um, have like territorial claims to the island. So it's Malaysia, it's Brunei, and then it's Indonesia. I was in the Malaysian part in Sabah. I was at the uh, Crocker Range National Park there, and we were looking at um, bat diversity in the park. Wow. Uh, So we spent um, six weeks um, doing research, and the last week we wrote up um, our, wrote up like our findings, and then had like a mini vacation between. Um, But yo, we found, the whole project was, I think, two years. Um, but I was there for the last year, um, and the whole project found around um, 200 bats and then 30 um, 30 species um, of bats in the area. And then there was six bat species that um, was new to the park uh, in itself yeah. that had never been recorded in the park. Um, and the way we caught the bats, we used two different methods. We used mist nets like the ones you use for birds. And then we also use harp trouts, which are basically like a, a giant window frame. And it has like fishing line that hangs down, um, kind of like a harp, like the instrument in the harp, that's what it's named for, kind of, but it hangs down and bats fly into the fishing line and slide down it. And there's a bat that catches them. 
Um, and the bag has like a has like flaps over it so they can get up under those flaps and be protected from any predators or um, the weather elements. Um, so we utilize um, those two methods. On um, the the first like first couple of days, it, it was crazy because like we probably caught one bat and we were waking up we were waking up um, early and staying up late to like trap for these bats and it was like oh there's one bat there's two bats so then after like like the fifth day like the bats just kept coming it was like whoa <laughs> it was so cool like but yeah so we were working with um, insectivores and also fruit bats as well um, and then like the insectivores like they're they're pretty cool um, and the fruit bats, they were cool, but also scary too. Like, I don't know, because their eyes are like so much bigger than the like uh, insectivores. And like with the insectivores, since their eyes are small, like you can work them up and not really pay attention to them. But with the fruit bats, like their eyes are big and they're just looking at you while you're working them up. <laughs> like little ones. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And then they have like their teeth, like, so we're wearing leather gloves. Um, with, with the fruit bats, we wear gloves with all the bats, but with the fruit bats, we also wear weather gloves because they're teeth. And like some of them, like they bite you and you still can like feel it through your leather gloves, like you, it pinches you. So it's like they're they're gotta hold your glove and just staring at you, like I'm gonna remember you and you're trying to work them up. But yeah, so I, I did that for um, six, six and a half, seven weeks, and then I came back to. Uh, working with turtles at this time on a dredging boat. Um, so this is kind of funny because like, I never really picture myself working with sea turtles at all because one, um, in my mind, like sea turtles live at sea. I, I don't ever plan on going on a boat at sea. So I never really work with sea turtles. Um, but I found out, <laughs> I wasn't thinking that, oh yeah, they come ashore to nest. And then I ended up having to go out to sea to actually work with sea turtles when I went on a dredge boat so a, a dredging ship um, is a ship that comes in after hurricanes or if a town is um, rich enough they can um, build their own islands or add to their beaches um so what happens is the dredging boat will come up and either um, dig up dig up channels to widen to widening or deepen them for um, ships to come through that's transporting cargo or mm -hmm. after hurricanes they will dig up sand and throw it back on the beach, a process called beach renourishment. So with that, I, I was on the boat to make sure that they're not running into any endangered marine mammals. So like right whales, or they're not digging up any sea turtles. So um, I would watch them dig, uh, dig up sand and then travel back and forth to the dig site and dump site. And then, excuse me, after each dig, um, they would bring up the drag head, which is basically like a, giant tri oh excuse me <laughs> giant like triangle looking instrument that's like a kind of like a shovel um and it was dig it was dig up sand and like vacuuming it up um but sometimes like um sea turtles or other marine organisms could be right there so they for sea turtles they have TEDs which are turtle exclusion devices okay. so like with the nets where the, the TEDs like are like open up and the turtle can come out with these is trying to prevent the sea turtle. So it's a four inch by four inch grid that's in front of the uh, drag head. Um, so the sea turtles, like if it were right there, it would bounce off and wouldn't get sucked up. So my job was to make sure that those chains are always standing four by four 
Um, and if it wasn't the welder, I would have to tell the captain or um, whoever was in charge at a time, but hey, you need to fix this before you can dig it in. And they would come and weld it. Um, and then sometimes like sea turtles would, would get picked up. Um, and so if the sea turtles were picked up, we had to first see if they're alive. If they were alive, we'll um, work them up and send them to a rehab center. Like we'll call a boat and they'll meet us. And um, sometimes we're in the middle of, not really middle ocean, but middle ocean. It was like uh, anywhere from five to 20 miles out at sea. And so we have to have a boat that will come and pick up the sea turtle and take it to a rehab center. Um, but if the turtle was dead when I found it, I had to work it up and see if it's a fresh dead or how long it's been dead to determine if they're dragging the um, dredging company actually killed it. Um, and then like if they did, um, like it becomes a take and you only can take so many turtles before the project is um, closed down. But if they didn't, I didn't count as a take because sometimes the turtles already dead and it just happened to get sucked up. Um, mm -hmm. But if so many turtles were getting where if so many turtles were gonna or getting taken, um, we were pit add onto it. So they were actually like well more changed onto the the actual drag head. So this time it kind of looked like a, a jelly, like a jellyfish, um, where it had tentacles. So they well changed now. And those chains are called ticklers because it's supposed to like tickle anything out the way as it's coming down. Okay. Um so that was another measure measurement that was in place to prevent any more turtles from being taken. But uh, and besides like just checking the drag head, my job was also to check the hopper, which is where all the sand and material that's dug up is going to and check the collection boxes to see is there any sea turtle, sea turtles in there, but also what other marine organisms are in there. Like it could be, um, there's a lot of different shells, but also like if we're all off the coast of the Carolinas, um, horseshoe crabs. So a lot of, a lot of those, um, sometimes they're like, uh, like angle sharks or guitar fish um, that were growing up. Um, so it was just like seeing what, it was like a mystery what would be in the box um, that we were making sure that none of it was in danger. Uh, if it was like write it up and then we'll get a quote of like how many marine organisms that we got up to for fill out a report and um, send it off just so we know what is happening um, while he's dredging. Um, when you look through the box for these for these organisms are they all like dead i mean i said it was cool and then i was like wait a second some of them are uh, a lot of them are because they're going through the pump they're going through like a pump that it's like crushing up like sand and dirt wow. so some of them, some of them are dead and others uh if they're alive we just try to like throw them back yeah. um but some of them are um mm. yeah so it's, it's it's definitely like uh and then like especially in hot sun, some of them like that, since they are all, some of them do pass, it smells. So like, you have to actually go in there and like with them and count and like, yeah. Uh, that's, that's rough. I, I was thinking it was kind of sounded exciting in the sense of you get to see all these species that could be pulled up. And then I was like, wait, yeah. I mean, like, that's how I feel about mist netting birds. When I walk up to a mist net, I'm like, oh, I wonder what we get. And that's the same thing, except that they're probably injured, so it's not really right. Right? Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting and, and pretty cool. Like you, what you get to see, and then like, um, but it is also that aspect of it. Um, so yeah, but the Georgia operation, like working as a, I guess, ESO and endangered species observer, like uh, you get to see uh, like a 
a little bit of both sides of like the treasure operation, but also on um, the change fees. And then you get to see dolphins, out at sea, whales, mm-hmm. um, sometimes sea turtles swim by. Uh, so it's it's definitely like um, pros and cons of it. Um, but my, like my job is there to make sure like um, that the dredge operations are following like protocol when it comes to protecting these um, endangered species. Mm-hmm. Very important purpose-driven work. Like yeah. an amazing thing you're doing with that. Uh, out of all the jobs that you've talked about, I want to talk a little bit about how much you got paid or if you had to pay for any of them. Uh, and which sounds weird because, you know, I've talked to, right. I've had a bunch of different interviews and people are like, yep, I had to pay to work. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Right, right. So yes. specifically like the Malaysia one, was that right. a grad program, a grad project that you jumped on or did you... Um, was it like more of a tour, like eco tourist thing? No, um, so that one was uh, actually, um, it was through a through a college, college um, and it, it was actually a paid position, a, a pretty decently paid position. Excellent. Uh, um, so yeah, they they paid for my way over there and and like gave me half my stipend while I was there, and then they when I got way there too. Yeah, way wow. there and back. Yeah. Wow. Well done. What college or university was it? Um, it was through Texas Tech and Missouri State, I believe. Well done, guys. Paying your field technicians. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that one was a, was through a grant, and it was for um early career scientists. Um, so it was mainly geared towards like unrepresented scientists. Um, Excellent. Yeah. And then. Uh, so like I haven't worked any job where I actually had to pay to work. I definitely try to steer, stay clear of those. Um, the job that I got paid less was obviously like the student conservation and AmeriCorps like position that was uh, that was like an internship. Um, that was we got paid six hundred dollars in like a month for a living for like rent, and then we got paid maybe another. 700 or so maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> for um for like a living stipend so we got like a housing stipend and then a living stipend mm-hmm. um so that we got paid that and um, um we had to find our own housing which mm-hmm. thankfully like one of my teammates up there was from the area so we we got we um bumped together and found out found a house and that was a whole nother experience in itself because like our first house that we found it was a he was a like a slumlord I guess so it was he was like a horrible like yeah a whole bunch of different houses and um rented rented them out um but like when we moved in like he like promised us all this stuff and then like we had to leave because he he didn't do any of it um so we had to find somewhere else like the first one we found was in our in our range like we could we could like um we could afford it and then second house that we found uh wasn't our wasn't in our range um but the landlord was nice and like like he under, he's understanding like he'll take what we what we can give him um, so we so we worked worked with him and he was a really good landlord 
Um, but yeah, it was it was, it was rough. Like the first the first like two months um, living oh. in that other house, and like like I said, they paid us like little to little to nothing like for the the housing in that area. Yeah. Um, so that was like one of the lowest I I got um, ever got paid for a position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's so interesting. Like two things that I want to think I was wanting to say before I lose my train of thought, which is very easy to ha- happens to me all the time. But the hazards of the job of like the, the small hazards that you don't think about with these seasonal field tech works, moving around all the time, trying to get a foot in the door in the conservation world. Not only do you get paid next to nothing when you're starting out, and that's kind of just the way it is. It's not ideal. It's right. not great, and I don't like it, and I wish it would change, but that's what we have. Um, but you're also, yeah, you're dealing with these like emotional hazards or these emotional uh, things of moving and living with different people and finding housing. And it's like a very unstable position to be in. And you're constantly having to shift and change focus in order to go from Wisconsin to Texas, to Malaysia, to wherever. So for you was a, did you have a, do you feel like you have a good family support system? Like, um, because that's that's a consistent thing I'm hearing in this industry is to really work in it and to work through these emotional and low pay situations in order to break through into biological conservation work. You have to have a support system. Like, how is your support system? What yes. does that look like? It's it's definitely having a support system. Like, I wouldn't be able to do it if I didn't. Like, um, I have a dog and many like seasonal positions like they don't allow you like bring pets with you which is i don't know i I think it's ridiculous i bet i understand somewhat but in other ways i I don't really understand like why it's not possible but anyways yeah yeah, like yeah i definitely have like family support like i have to leave my dog with my my family during like the different seasons that i work um and then like honestly like if i didn't have my family like i I probably would be be homeless because i move around so much (laughs) Uh, so um like just cha- moving around so much and then um like a lot of times like some some positions don't really tell you the true atmosphere um of the area you're going to be living in um mm-hmm. until you get there and you're like oh wow like you said it was rural but you didn't say i'll be an hour away from the nearest town and i won't have cell phone service so yeah it's some of them they don't really tell you a lot until you get get there um so you gotta have a, a good support system um, just for just for that and then um many times with these positions with a lot of season positions it, you don't get paid like the first like month or so mm. um because you have to get enter into the system and then you have to wait for a paycheck to go by yep. and then yep. the next paycheck you get which was ridiculous, especially like for us seasonal workers, like we already been in the system. Like I've been in the system now for seven years. So why do you, every time I move to a new like position, like you have to like re-enter, like she would just be like, okay, he was at Pyre Island last year. So let's just go ahead, um, reopen his, open his file and um, we can go ahead and pay him to cycle. But no, you have to wait for a whole thing to go through, then get paid Never on the next easy. one. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. So yeah, like having a, a support system 
it's definitely one of the big things that you got to have, like doing this, this type of work. Mm -hmm. um, and it's sad because that. it does it, it excludes so many people who don't have that support system or don't have that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to like discourage people from going into biology, but I find myself doing it more and more because I'm right, like, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely, I mean, I can see it definitely can discourage uh, people, um, especially like. Like if you don't have a suppressor, if you have pets, you, you can't bring them, you can't bring them with you. Kids. Or if you if you do, you have kids too. Yeah, if you do bring them with you, um, landlords probably want to charge an arm and a leg um, for it, which, which is ridiculous. And then there are some like governmental jobs that offer housing, but then they also charge you for the housing. It's not they don't charge you a lot, but they still like charge you. So it's just like, uh. And then they still won't let you bring your, your pet with you. So it's like, okay, well, maybe I'll just live live off live off the National Park so I can have my pet. I mean, I have to pay a bit more, but at least like have some like sense of normalcy with me, something from home to be with me. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely like it's definitely like um uh, some discouragement going on when like working um, seasonal jobs and another thing is like uh, the rumor has it that I'm not really sure how true it is um, that they're they're actually working to fix this but a lot of like seasonal positions like um so you get working with the government you get annual leave and sick leave and all that but you don't like actually recruit like any time towards like retirement or anything so like um, other people who are permanent staff like though they, they worked there for 10 years. Oh, you have a 10 years of service, blah, blah, blah. But other like seasonal people, like I'm going on like, I don't know, like six years of seasonal work now. But if I continue doing seasonal work, when I get it 10 years, I won't get a, a plaque or anything or it won't be like time served um, towards my retirement. So that mm -hmm. apparently that's, um, some, a little bird told me that they're supposed to be working on a bill to help seasonal workers like be able to get these extra benefits on um, that we don't get right now. Like we get like annual leave and um, paid time off and sick leave, but we don't get um, that, but which many times, many of us like do um, years in the service before we actually find a, a permanent job. Mm -hmm. um, and many times, some of the times we actually, like the jobs that we actually find first are not the jobs that we're actually even qualified for. It's like the job below us. Like, mm -hmm. as a bachelor, you should be able to get a GS five job. Um, that many of us start below that, and and then have to work our way up, mm -hmm. just in order to get <laughs> to the GS five. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I feel like seasonal tech technicians and the conservation realm, we always get the short end of the stick. Like it's just like the scraps or the leftovers, like whatever. I mean, especially government work, for example. Um, I know there are so many people who have great federal jobs and and so I'm not trying to discredit that, but I'm also like, this is, it's really sucky. Like it, it just, conservation doesn't get enough funds even at the government level. Most of the right. funds are going big scale. You think about like cyber security and yeah. you know, wars and uh, army right. and, and those things are important to be able you know, for some of that, but, but we just, it just doesn't 
and then when it comes to the Department of the Interior or, you know, helping our sustainable ecosystems, even that branch of the government is mainly to agriculture, it's mainly to hunting, or it's mainly right. to all these other things and, and conservation gets like means much. Exactly. Yeah, that, that is true. And hopefully right now I'm moving towards a more apparent position that right. it's is definitely true that it's like the seasonal workers definitely get the, the short end of the stick and um, sometimes I don't know, like other permanent position positions get um, get raises and things before the season workers actually get um, anything. But there are so, certain like acts in place that are geared towards helping um, some of the season worker. Uh, like there's the like land management uh, like act, which is like a company Ooh. like it's a it's like it's something like, I have to look it up. But it's like the it's for like work um uh, like it's land it's lands based management like um act and it's a basically like you get a competitive status um over like people who haven't worked with the government before so you don't have to compete with everyone who's just now graduating but you have to do um at least two years of um like seasonal work or any type of governmental work that's focused on like conservation or land mm-hmm and uh, and then you have that competitive status over them mm -hmm. or if you do or if you work with americorps for a year you have a competitive status mm -hmm. uh, so there are some things that are built in place mm -hmm. that um it's still like well if everyone does that now it's still like oh we're back to square one mm -hmm. um yeah and then uh it's also it looks like it's look like a lot of the like especially uh, like a lot of the biological like science and biological technician jobs are like disappearing um, um, and they're more focused on it seems like the jobs are they're changing the dynamics and it's not really like biological jobs that are going but more so like um, visitor like visitor use or mm. um, like office jobs and not really conservation and land management positions that are I'm going <laughs> that are out there I don't know I probably shouldn't say that but oh well <laughs> but yeah you kind of did cut out a little bit so maybe it it cut out what you want to say. I'm not sure but I the gist is like seeing fewer and fewer biological yes. jobs and more in the office that we don't right yeah yeah and, it, and then you're like does my job have a purpose like this is what i so clearly want to do i'm called to do i want to work and help the environment and yet i'm gonna do an office job and like assist visitors no that's not right no. right right and that's where i see a lot of like people my age like i guess for a while like the government the federal and governmental work were was like a safe and stable job but now yeah. it seems like going more um ngo and nonprofit um is the way to go if you want to do conservation work um it may not be as secured um a lot of times because it's a lot of it is based on like funding but it's definitely a guaranteed way if you want to work with conservation wildlife to do that um actually that 
Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting talking to so many different people and hearing their perspectives and where they think, yeah, like, I, I agree, nonprofit work is so valuable. I just, there's the pay, it's just still, yeah. it's still hard. And you, it's a combination of luck and getting in at the right time and all of that. Um, I don't know how much time you have, but I did want to, if you have time and um, emotional <laughs> capacity to talk about like representation, when you do your <laughs> biological tech work, do you often encounter many other black people? Is it, <laughs> is it difficult? Oh, and I also wanted to go back to, well, answer that question first and then I'll go back. Yeah, um, I would say um, I've probably only been at two positions where I actually had um, other people of, of color, not necessarily black, but other people of color um, that, worked, that worked with me. Yeah. Or may, uh, at least with the federal, federal and, um, and nonprofits that's private. Um, um, that one had a little bit more, but one of the programs was geared towards underrepresented people. Um, so yeah. yeah and that um, was the like, early careers in sciences. Is that what you said it was? Yeah, it was an early <laughs> career science, early career science, um, sciences, scientists. Scientists. And um, is that like a, a subsidy program or a scholarship program or how did, how did? Uh, it was a, it was the program through. Missouri State and Texas Tech. So basically, they they wrote a grant for it. Uh, so with that program, it was geared toward early career scientists um, and underrepresented, so women and people of color. Uh, so with that, we that's where we got the funds to go to Malaysia, and then we actually partnered with um, some of the students from Malaysia to actually um, work with them as scientists. And so kind of like we. Um, we're working with them, showing them um, some of the roles that um, as scientists to pretty much like, um, I guess like give he'll give them the reins or the leash of like conducting research um, in their area, and so there's not a heavy Western present yes. in that area. So that's what it was. We were working with um, some of the Malaysian students, like teaching them um, scientific um, work and things to. Um, give to like give it back pretty much give it back to them right um, so that they can, yeah we're not it's not just parachute science we're coming in and then yeah <laughs> taking see ya we got your data and now we're gonna go publish and yeah 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 that's what I love to hear and that's a right. big, big passion so, yeah with that and then like with the fish and wildlife service our first time like I I was the only black person in the office um at all there like um, and while I was in Wisconsin, and then like we went to one training, we went to a chainsaw training. I got to see three other um, black people. Uh, they weren't necessarily one on was um, in the actual uh, like biological role, um, biology role, and the other two um, were were like uh, they weren't. There was just weight, wage grade or mechan mechanics that were getting chainsaw certified. Um, but like uh, interesting story, like when I was in Wisconsin, like um, obviously like I was the only black person there and we went to a uh, truck stop um, to weigh our uh, trucks and trailers to get um, how much they weigh so we make sure we're in compliance with um, federal orders. Mm -hmm. And like I went in there and like um, the one of the other um, 
text went in and came back out. Um, then when I went in there, like one of the truck drivers looked at me and, and he was like, oh, are you with maintenance? I'm like, like what? Like I have a full like physical wildlife service uniform. Um, and like the first thing you'll think uh, is like, I'm in maintenance. And then I was like, no, I'm, I'm actually one of the biologists. And then um, he, he kind of like left and I was like, oh, well, you guys need to stock this pun. And I was like, oh, well, I'm actually a federal biologist and we're actually working with um, endangered species and on feral lands. So you should probably call the local DNR. And then he was like, oh, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. I was like, like, no, like you only said that you're just kidding because I called you out on it. Yeah. Right? It, was just, it was just, it was just ridiculous. Like the first thing you think of, like when you see a person of color and any type of like federal uniform that, that they're um, in maintenance, they can't be assigned. So you already have like a ceiling of how high we can go yeah. um, before you even like know what we are. So yeah, so that was when I was in Wisconsin, and then working at National Park Service, there were there weren't any other um, um, black um, scientists there, but uh, there were um, a lot of people of color there for uh, indigenous people, and also um, a couple of other people of color. So there were um, some people who were Hispanic, and then also uh, a person. Um, who was of Asian descent um, mm. there. Um, so both for both years, um, there were um, people people of color um, there. And then there, in the uh, in the there was a black person um, there in the um, that was in a maintenance department um, there. So that was cool. And then it was that was the first time also that um, a person of color were actually um, in a like. Um, supervisory role when I was there nice. um so that, that was good to see yep. um, when I was there and currently now um with official all the where I'm at now the refuge manager is actually uh, a black man um so that was, that was one of the decisions when I accepted like this position um was because um the refuge manager was a black man and now he's oh. a refuge manager and also acting like project leader Mm. Awesome. But most of my other positions were, were pretty much not diverse at all working at the zoo and aquarium they were diverse so it was a mix of uh, a definitely a good mix of black white and other people of color mm. um so that, that was pretty, pretty good because we also dealt with a lot of different di diverse individuals that came to the aquarium zoo mm -hmm. and then you can represent right exactly <laughs> Oh, beautiful. Yeah, we need we need all the voices at the table. Yeah. I I love that story because it's like, well, I don't love it, but I like that you are willing to share it because it's just these microaggressions that I mean, I how often do I as a white person walk into a room and count how many white people there are? No. You know what I mean? Like and you yeah. you specifically, there were three black people in that room. And I'm like, wow, I I don't think about that and we need to be thinking about that and I'm glad to hear your stories and I'm glad to hear that things are changing and people are speaking up about it and having these dialogues and the conversations that need to be had and hopefully changing conservation for the better too um, by bringing all all backgrounds and experiences and voices to our table right right yeah and 
Um, I well, I used to think that we need to bring it to the table, but um, it's actually we we need to uh, we need a new table. We need to destroy the table because even if we bring it to mm-hmm. the table, it's still pretty much set up for the legacies of those before where like we can bring ideas, but it's still like can like let's say it, it can still be like oh this is what we did instead of like this is that what we all did. So it's definitely it, it needs to be a new table built. I'm not, and we don't need to be around a tainted table. Mm. That's good. So, so the the term, like even bringing it's it's even that inherently has white supremacy embedded in it. It's assuming that the table is white, and we want to invite you guys to it too. Right. Yes. Mm. Yep. We need to tear down that table and build a new table. Right. Yes. Hmm. Gosh, those roots run deep, man. It is sick. It is sick, and we need a completely new paradigm. So, yeah, that's that's a very interesting perspective. Anything else you want to share? Like, what else? Other thoughts about representation, diversity, inclusion? Yeah, it's, yeah, representation. It definitely matters. I mean, like, mm-hmm. like I said, growing up, like I didn't have rep- representation of anybody who worked with animals. Um, like people who are a vet or a farmer, which notes the spread to them, those are great. We're both great um, and needed positions. Um, but for me, like, yeah, yeah, but like, I never, like, I live 20 minutes away from a, was, well, it's a national battlefield, not a national park. And growing up, I never seen one black person working there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't see my, I still, I, I don't think I ever, still to this day, I seen a black person working at on that battlefield. And then at the zoo, like I grew up going to the zoo in Atlanta, which is a heavily like diverse area. And I didn't see not one black like zookeeper there until I started working there when I was ooh, like 25, 26. Is that's when I, the first time I even saw a black zookeeper there wow so it's it, reputation is definitely like something that needs to be uh happening so that's why i, I try to use my, my platform to show like mm-hmm. not only just from like being a black person but also coming from a lower economic status that like you can be black and be a wildlife biologist you can be poor and be a wildlife, wildlife biologist like that representation definitely matters um and so like for me like i I wasn't say I would settle on being a vet, but I probably could have settled on it. Still could have had a meaningful career, um, just, but just just because I didn't I didn't see anyone who looked like me working with wildlife in the capacity that I wanted to do it. Uh, so uh, like, I just really truly believe and know that representation um, does matter, and we we should be getting it out there. And I'm really inspired by your story because you didn't have that representation and instead you are the representation now. Like you didn't have that. So you claim that for yourself and for the rest of that community. And that's awesome. So good on you. Good for you for, you know, when you even said in, I think you said in high school, you were like, or playing sports or something and you would just staring off and wanted to look at the bugs and wanted to look at the wildlife instead. And I just wonder if your inner spirit to go towards nature and to be acquainted with nature, if that was like 
looked down upon in a community that you were in because it's weird or black people don't do that or whatever yeah I mean it definitely is like I I really didn't like tell anybody I was like so interested in nature I definitely like kind of hit it besides like at home Uh, like most of the stuff growing up like I did if it wasn't with it wasn't like fishing with family or like camping with with other friends like no one really knew like it was like I, I played sports and I had a lot of friends that no one knew knew about um, like my nature Friday night until like the last couple like months and stuff in in high school um and then of course when I got to college like it, it came out because I truly be myself but I definitely hit it mm-hmm. um and then like even now like a lot of like um a lot of my like family um, when I was going to college was actually what I was going to be and I was like oh I'm majoring in biology and biology so oh you're going to be a doctor and I was like oh no I'm not going to be a doctor or at least not that type of doctor <laughs> um so then even today it's like some people say oh you should be a doctor and I'm like well, that's, that's not just for me that's not for me so yeah and that you know that in your heart like I like I can feel that I can get that sense that energy from you I have that too of like this I I'm supposed to be doing this like this to bridge that connection with nature in whatever form that looks like yes and you set a different standard and you broke down the barriers and you are an inspiration uh to black kids all over and beyond breaking cultural barriers everything so I so appreciate what you're doing, Al, on your, through your Instagram. I'm not on Twitter much. Are you on Twitter too? I am, yeah. I'm sure you're making just awesome waves on Twitter and challenging stereotypes and killing it over on the Twitter sphere. So thank you for being proactive about this. I, I can't imagine also how emotionally draining this is, um, not only from a biological conservation aspect of our planet is dying, but then bridging the racism gap too. So thanks for being willing to have this conversation with me. Thank you for, um, yeah, we're, we're like a little over, but um, that's okay. I appreciate you taking a little extra time for me and for this community. And is there any final thing you wanna share? Do you wanna, and also share where people can find you on social? Yeah, uh, I guess like what I'll share is just like, be 100% like unapologetically you um mm-hmm. like you don't have to you don't have to hide who you are and then like um go for what you're passionate about like sure you can and do something to make a lot of money but are you truly going to be happy doing that if you're not passionate about it um what you're passionate about um and that's one way that like you not only can like be like successful in your to yourself but also on just successful in the opportunity that you pursue you're going to put more effort into it if you're passionate about it versus you're just trying to do it for a check so be 100% unapologetic of you and um, stay true to your passion and continue chasing that passion yeah and then you guys can follow me on twitter and instagram at nature underscore al and that's in the number eight t-u-r-e underscore a-l nice and that's on both twitter and instagram you said yes that. twitter and instagram whoa al thank you so much thank you it was a pleasure having you i love talking with you i love hearing your history your story 
everything. And I can't wait to see what you're up to next. Like maybe in a year or two, we can have a conversation and be like, oh, this is how things have changed. And so I, I look forward to following your journey and continuing to follow that. All right. Thank Great. you. And awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Good to talk to you. All righty. Bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet. Thank you.